You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2015. Today's episode is titled, The 125 Rule. The 80-20 rule states that roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. This rule was named after an Italian economist who famously observed that approximately 80% of the land in Italy was owned by approximately 20% of the people. He also noted this phenomenon in agriculture. He also noted this phenomenon in agriculture, observing that 20% of the pea pods in his garden contained 80% of the peas. Management must recognize the context for work. Work is performed in a fallen world that will disrupt the organization's ability to effectively deliver its value proposition. As a maxim, the minority of the people will produce the majority of the work. Therefore, to overcome this maxim, it is essential for management to find the right workers, that is, people who possess a biblical view of work as demonstrated by their actions. Such people will progressively grow and mature in their ability to overcome sin, both in themselves and in the physical world. Furthermore, these people will seek to find and fulfill the call of God on their lives in the workplace. In other words, these people will seek to find work that they have C4 to do. As a maxim, C4 people will produce the results that enable organizations to deliver world-class value to those served. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Bearing Crops for the King. Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege of uh, being here together this morning, being your servants in this place to really seek to understand what it is to walk with you more fully. So, Lord, would you give us grace to hear? We ask that the Holy Spirit would minister to each one of us and prick our ears to hear something new and fresh today. And, Father, we acknowledge you as a source of all truth, and we're here as your servants with knees bent this morning to hear from you. So, Father, we thank you. We commit ourselves to you. We commit, commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's, it's very normal for me to have way too much material for the time, so I'm probably going to have to skip through some of this, and I'll apologize to you in advance. And I normally would like to read a text to you, but in the interest of time, I'm going to assume you know the text. So is that a fair statement? You guys I look like you're all bright, intelligent people. You're knowledgeable students of the Bible. So I'm sure you know Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9, and Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23. So I'm just imputing that you know those. Okay? Is that good? All right, great. Well, we're going to talk about this morning bearing crops for the king. And I'm going to start out in 1882, and we're going to talk about a man by the name of Henry. Henry was 27 years old. Um, he had just fought a pretty tough battle with tuberculosis. God had healed him. He had also lost his father early in life. And so uh, he was on his knees as a young man seeking the meaning and significance of life. And he had a very godly pastor. And the pastor, incidentally, isn't it important to have a godly pastor? Godly pastors are, save our souls so many times in ways we don't realize. But anyway, this godly pastor ministered to this young man when he was grieving at 11 years old over the death of his father, trying to understand what was going on. Why would God do this? This seemed cruel and mean, and the pastor was able to give Henry's perspective and brought Henry to the Lord. A few years later, Henry had the chance to hear the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And in that message, D.L. Moody said something that shaped Henry's life. D.L. Moody said this, he said, the world has not seen what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully consecrated to him. Henry heard that and it resonated in his heart. He carried that word with him the rest of his life. Now, that's, that's what a seed does. Okay? So at 27 years old, it, that word is still there and it's still resonating in him. But at that point in time, he also knew something else about himself. He knew that he had been created to be a businessman. And he was looking for an opportunity. And he found that opportunity. He found a failing oatmeal company that his uncle owned. His uncle had given up on it. And Henry says, you know, I think I can do something with this. So Henry bought the company from his uncle, a failing company. You understand a company is losing money. That's a failing company. So Henry gets this company, and he turns it around, and he gets it moderately profitable. And he realizes, 
you know, uh, this industry is fragmented. Those of you that know anything about investment banking understand that I'll talk to you in investment banking terms. This was an industry that was highly fragmented. There were no consolidators. There were no big players, all a bunch of little mom and pop operations up in Ohio, the Cleveland area of Ohio. So Henry, being a wise man, realizing, you know, we need to join forces. We need to get our competitors together because we've got a big, big problem here. People don't view oats as a human food. They view it as horse food. So we need to convey a message that it's good for human consumption. So he got 20 of his fellow competitors together, and they formed an association. And the association then uh, began to articulate the message of the value of oatmeal. And they went along for a while, and there was another major competitor in the area that didn't join the association. His name was Ferdinand Schumacher. Everybody know about Ferdinand? Ferdinand's an interesting guy. Ferdinand was older than Henry and his colleagues, and Ferdinand was very pugnacious. He was not interested in being part of a team. Well, one night in March of 1886, Ferdinand's operations burned to the ground, and he had no insurance. Now, Henry is a godly man. So even though Ferdinand has been, not been very nice to Henry, Henry goes to Ferdinand and says, I want to express to you my condolences about your loss. You know, we're really saddened by this. And then he discovers something very interesting. Schumacher had no insurance. So Schumacher lost everything, absolutely everything. So Henry says, you know, you could join our association, and we could try to help you rebuild your business. Now, Schumacher now saw an opportunity. He's a conniving old guy. And unbeknownst to Henry, he began to negotiate to buy another business at the same time. And this other business happened to be the Akron Mill Company. The Akron Mill Company had the latest technology in how to produce oatmeal, but they had very few sales. The way the association worked is your voting power was directly proportional to your production capability, not your sales. Key. Okay? So Henry invites Schumacher in, then Schumacher says, oh, by the way, I bought the Akron Mill Company, so I get X number of, of votes. And through that little trick and surprise, he was able to get a significant amount of voting power, and he was able to become secretary treasurer of the organization. About five years later, Henry begins to realize, you know, we really need to dissolve the association and merge all these companies together. In other words, this is what's called a roll-up. You all know what a roll-up is? So we investment bankers don't know what a roll-up is. Okay, so they did a little roll-up here and rolled up about 20 of these little mills into one company called the American Cereal Company. And Schumacher, being the crafty, pugnacious guy that he is, he decides, I'm going to negotiate real hard for my shares. And he was able to get 50% of the stock in American Cereal Company. Henry had about 12, and Henry's good friend, Robert Stewart, who was really the financial guy in the whole thing, was, uh, got 12%, and there was another guy named Jim Andrews who was the production guy. So you had, you had the, the get work, do work, keep score guys, the three people, that's the three full chord, Dennis. True of, of any business, you have the three full chord. So they were the key to making American cereal work. Now, everybody pretty well knew that, now, even though Schumacher didn't like these guys and really was looking for a way to get rid of them so he could get total control of this company, he knew he couldn't do that. He didn't have the political clout. So for five or six years, they're all, they've all kind of are in an unequally yoked situation, but there's a, a kind of a truce because Schumacher doesn't have the clout to get rid of these guys. Finally, in 1897, American Cereal Company has its first losing quarter. Now, back then, a losing quarter was a big problem. Okay, it created a real shock to the board. So the board basically was sold on the idea by Schumacher to fire the chief financial officer, okay, which was Robert, who is Henry's best buddy. So Henry is devastated by the loss of Robert. Shortly thereafter, Schumacher was able to convince the board to get rid of Henry. So Henry's gone. So here the guy that formed this company is booted out by Schumacher in this great coup. Now, the question here is, what does Henry do? What does Henry do? That's the big question. And what I want to do is I want to lay out for you in my presentation what Henry needed to know to make good choices. And at the end, I'm going to tell you what he did. Let's talk about the game we're in. 
you know, I was, um, I do seminars from time to time, and I did one recently, and one of the seminars I do is on personal destiny. And one of the guys that attended was offended. Can you imagine somebody offended with me? Happens all the time. But he was offended, and he had to tell me, I'm offended that you compared life to a game. I said, well, Paul does it. He talks about running the race. You know, furthermore, Dennis Peacock does. That gives it real authority. Okay. So anyway, we had a good conversation about that. But hopefully you're not, you're not offended by the realize that we are in a game. Now, I've got the Greek word up there that uh, is found in Luke 19 that we're going to talk about this morning. It's the word pragmatiomai. Uh, does anybody know what we might get from that word? Pragmatic. That's right. Pragmatic. That, that, this is a description of the game that we're in. Let me read to you Luke 19, 13. So Jesus called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. And he said, put this to work. That's the NIV translation of pragmatiomai. Okay? Pragmatiomai until I come back. Now, what does that mean? Well, I looked that up in the theological dictionary. Okay? And here are some of the definitions. It means to be occupied in anything, to carry on business, to carry on business of a trader or a banker. That's what this word means. In other words, when Jesus was giving us this parable in Luke 19, he was telling us, hey, guys, um, you are thinking that I'm going to physically establish the kingdom right now, and that's not true. There is going to be an interim time here, and I'm going to tell you a story that's going to characterize this time. And basically, you're like these servants, and I'm giving you the minas, and you're supposed to pragmatiomai. It's a good word. Pragmatiomai. You need to get into that thinking of pragmatiomai. Now, let me tell you what it's not. It's not a pragmatic worldview. It's not that. I had a great conversation with Daniel on the car, and I was sharing with him what I do. What I do is basically help people understand how to apply biblical principles in their businesses. And Daniel made the comment, you know, well, you know, does that really work? And that's, that's a very common comment. I said, do you understand, from a Christian worldview, that's not even a valid question. You know why it's not a valid question? Because that would suggest that a pragmatic worldview is superior to a biblical worldview. In other words, a Christian worldview would be subordinate to a pragmatic worldview. That's not my worldview. My worldview is that the Bible is true, God is true, and that whatever he defines as truth and reality is true. And my pragmatic ability to discern things and to figure out what seems to work has to be subordinated to a biblical worldview. Okay? So that's how you that's how you properly use pragmatism. There's a proper way to use it. We tend to use it improperly because in business we're dualist. Because when we get in the business world, we think that God really doesn't have anything to do with business. Because we don't look to the Bible as our handbook. I didn't bring my, my uh, copy of the Bible that I've got a cover on. On the cover, it says the Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity uh, by the Creator of the Universe. And what I do is I get the book, and I, I put my thumb over the, the author, and I hold it up, and I say, how many of you taken uh, classes in this, from this book? You know, Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity. How many of you have? Of course, everybody's looking like, what? I've never heard of that book. Well, surely you've, you've taken courses. I mean, you guys have had business training, haven't you? You would take it from the handbook, wouldn't you? And, of course, nobody has because the reality is we do not think of the Bible as the handbook for anything. Maybe it's handbook for church, maybe. Maybe for my family, maybe. But we, don't, we can't get it that, that God is into business. He told us to pragmatiomai. If he told us to pragmatiomai, he's telling us how to pragmatiomai. And that's what the Bible tells us, but we don't look at it that way. And so we don't look and say, okay, how are we supposed to lead? If we did, we'd find out about servant leadership. We don't look at it and say, well, what is the, what's the real value that this organization should embrace? Okay, if we did, we'd find the golden rule. Okay, they're all right there. If you begin to look at the Bible as the handbook, you can find out what the Bible says on how to hire people, how to terminate people how to manage companies, how to define a strategic plan. You know, I can show you how to define a strategic plan from the Bible. If you've got ears to hear, that's the question. And most of us don't because we just, we, when you hear that and we just kind of look at it and say, you've got to be kidding me. The Bible has something to say about business? Yes, it does. 
because it, it's been, we have been charged to do business. And if God charges us to do something, we can be sure that we have instructions on how to do it. Is that not fair? Would he tell us to do something and not tell us how to do it? That makes no sense, and he, he doesn't do that way. Let me just, I've got a little graphic here to show you the game, to illustrate the game. Okay, when you come into the world, you come in with no assets. Does everybody agree? Okay. In fact, Earl and I were talking about this morning. When you came into the world, you came in upside down because we have what in this country? We got debt. Okay. So you just, we, you just were born into debt. So, but you didn't have anything. Furthermore, one of the things I like to say in my seminars is, you know, when my daughters were born, I didn't find a tag on them anywhere. Do you find a tag on your kids? It says, hello, this is Lisa. I've created her to do this. Love God. Didn't find that. Didn't find that. I had to go into a discovery process to discover what God had created my daughters to do. And that's what every parent's got to do. So when we come in, we come in with really just, we're just bare. Okay? Now, when we go out, guess what? Whatever we've accumulated stays here. That's reality. Okay? So you come in with nothing, you go out with nothing. That's what 1 Timothy says, right? Now, here's the deal. Matthew 6 tells us what we're supposed to be doing while we're here. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, he's talking about business activities. Did you notice that? That's business activities, do stuff like that. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, if the first half of the verse is talking about business activities, do you think it's fair to assume that the second half is talking about business activities? Would that not be fair? Okay. Or is he all of a sudden, you know, he's talking about business activities and then he stops, and now he's talking about just spiritual activities that have nothing to do with business. That doesn't make any sense. That, I don't think any theologian would tell you to interpret that way. They would say, be consistent. If he's talking about business at the first, he's talking about business at the last. And so that means that business should be about storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Oh, you thought about that? That business is about spiritual activities. It's about spiritual reality. You see, we have this great bank in the sky where we're put, supposed to put eternal treasure in heaven. Okay, And the way we do that is by righteous living. That's how we store up treasures in heaven. And here's some examples. How about forgiveness? It's a great way to store up treasure in heaven is to forgive people. Forgive that competitor that abused you. Okay? Forgive that competitor that, that kicked you out of your own company. That's what Henry was dealing with. Okay? You want me to forgive him, Lord? Huh? Really? Do you know what he did to me? I mean, I'm the one that gave birth to this thing, and this guy did a coup on me here. Oh, Lord says, Henry, sorry. Forgive him. How about faith? You know what faith is? Faith is believing that God is true to his word. That's what faith is, this believing God. It's not believing pragmatically does something work. It's believing that God is at work and he is true to his word. Then you have hope and love and stewardship. These are all, these are just illustrations of ways that we can store up riches in heaven, something in the bank that has eternal significance. And we do that at work. You do that at school. You do that in the city council meeting. You do that in your churches and your homes. Wherever you live, you bring the rule and reign of God into that situation. It doesn't matter what it is. We are kingdom people. The question is, will we live like kingdom people? Life is about working on the dots. You know the story about the pastor and the man that were talking one day, and the pastor, trying to be very profound, says to the man, um, what is life all about to you? And the man says, well, pastor, it's working on the dots. And the pastor looks in, what, what do you mean working on the dots? Well, Pastor, have you ever been to a cemetery? And the pastor said, yes, I've performed many funerals. I've been to many cemeteries. He said, well, when you go to the cemetery, what do you see? Well, you see a bunch of headstones. And what's on the headstone? 
He said, well, a uh, person's name and the, their birth date and their, their date of their death. And then he says, what's between those two dates? And he says, well, dots. He says, well, that's what I'm working on. I'm working on those dots. So that's what we're all working on. We're all working on the dots. All right, there's a key rule to the game. Has everybody got, got the game, the Pragmatio game? It's, it's about being kingdom people wherever we go in every situation we have. There's a rule to the game here, okay? And that rule is simply this. See the one there? One rule? It's obedience. Obedience to divine revelation. That is the one rule to the game. That is the way you succeed at school, it's the way you succeed in business. It's the way you succeed in your family, in your church. Wherever you live, you obey, and that's how you have success. In fact, that is the definition of success. One of the ways, um, just a side point here, uh, can I say to you that we are all sucked into the world's thinking? Okay, is that a fair statement? I think everybody would believe it. You know, we default to the world's thinking because we don't think very biblically because we're not good students of the Word. We're not disciplined learners. By the way, just another side point, you know, you know why we're supposed to be disciplined learners? Because learning is hard. If it wasn't hard, you wouldn't have to be disciplined. Right? You know, the only reason that we are, it's, discipleship is about being disciplined learners is because it's difficult. If Jesus sweat drops of blood to obey God, do you think we might sweat drops of blood? Has anybody done that? You might sweat drops of blood to obey God? No, we don't do that. Because what we want is the easy way. In fact, sometimes I think what we do when we worship is we're worshiping God, saying, God, make my life easy. Okay? And God's not into easy. God's into changing you into the image of his son. And that's called the metamorphic process of Romans 12, which means metamorphosis is about heat and pressure. Okay? God's into heat and pressure. I just got through reading Job in my, my uh, I read through the Bible every year. I read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice every year. Just part of my discipline of how I read through the Bible to keep myself fresh. So I just got through reading Job, and I was just so impressed at how God did not have a problem at all putting Job in the ringer. Not a problem at all. Okay? And after he heard all the nonsense that went on about the worldview that all the friends brought that just was not right, God speaks. You know when God speaks, everybody kind of shuts up, which is a good thing. And at the end, what happens? What most people focus on, well, Job got all his money back. But that isn't really what happened. That ha did happen, but that wasn't the important thing. What was the important thing was what Job said. He said, I had heard of you. Now I see you. You see, the revelation went up a notch. What that was all about was to take Job to a new level of understanding of God. Now, is that not good? Is that worth the pain? Is that worth the suffering? Is that worth the discipline? That's what it's all about, guys. We're in the game, and it's not necessarily going to be fun. Okay, now what I want to do is give you three ways that God speaks to us, gives us revelation or light. And just, just a side point, those of you that have studied physics, you know that light has two characteristics that we cannot reconcile. It, at some points, it behaves like a wave, and on other experiments, it, it behaves like a particle. Now, we can't put that together. We have no theory to reconcile those two, and what I would submit to you is that is a picture of Christ, because Christ is God, and Christ is man, and theologians have not been able to put that together either. So what you have when you see light, you have a reference to Christ and the nature of Christ Revelation is about Christ in everything. It's about Christ in business. It's about Christ in science. It's about Christ in education. It's about Christ in government. It's about Christ in your families. It's about Christ in your personal life. Everything is about learning and seeing from God's perspective. And there's three ways that God communicates with us. First is through general revelation. General revelation is revelation that's available to anyone, everyone. And in God's grace, he reveals himself. He says this in Proverbs 120. There are many verses we could appeal to here. I'm just, showing, just quoting one here. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public square. 
In other words, it's right out there for everybody to hear if you have ears to hear. So that's a general revelation. Then you have special revelation. This is the Bible, the Word of God. These are the principles from the handbook. Okay, I want to just drill this handbook a little bit for you. I want, I want you to know, those of you that are in school, who all is in school? Okay, who all is in school? Okay, can you get it that your handbook for all of your classes is the Bible? Okay, all of your textbooks should be commentaries on the Bible. You got that? So you always want to look and see how well they are in harmony with the Bible. Because if they're not in harmony with the Bible, guess what's wrong? The textbook is wrong. Okay? See? Now, pragmatiomai comes in here because we would bring a misunderstanding of pragmatiomai, and we would say pragmatically, well, this doesn't reconcile with the Bible, like, for example, the whole issue of evolution. Okay? You, you got to get it that evolution is a theory that supports atheism. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean there's certain elements of it that we, that we might find some support for in Scripture. But the theory overall is flawed because it's got a, a false presupposition. So you've got to always begin with a handbook. If you're going to study business, you go to the handbook. And all the business articles, all the business books are commentaries on the Bible. Now, what's interesting, I do a lot of reading of business material, and I read what these guys come up with. And I'm fascinated. For example, how many of you have read uh, Discovering the Soul of Service? Has anybody read that book by Leonard Berry? Okay, I can see. You guys need to read more. This, this is a pretty good book. This was a study of service companies to discern what are the principles that drive great service organizations. Guess what the number one principle he came up with was? A high value system. Great service companies have high value systems. Now, he wouldn't call it biblical value system because he doesn't know that. But he called it a high value system. I looked at his values. It's biblical values. Here is wisdom crying in the streets from a pagan writer telling us reality because God spoke through him. Now, that is general revelation. Special revelation is when the Word of God, it, we go to the Word of God as the handbook, and we find the principles for all of life in the Word of God. Finally, we have specific revelation. Specific revelation is revelation to do something and that revelation is for you. For example, Matthew 10, verse 19. But when, you, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. In other words, he's describing a situation that's going to happen to these people and saying, don't worry, God's going to tell you what to do in that situation. That is specific revelation. Now, let me just give you some more quick examples here. We'll go through these quickly. This is, I've read this just recently about general revelation. This is, and this was an article that was written by Jim Collins who wrote Good to Great. He says this, Abraham Maslow defines self-actualization as the process of discovering what you were made to do and making a commitment to do it with excellence. That is a biblical thought. Coming from a man, as far as I know, has no knowledge of Christ. But God spoke to this man. He gave you biblical thought because what he's saying here is there is a creator you were made to do something and what self-actualization is all about which is about finding your destiny and purpose is discovering what you were made to do oh the rocks cry out how about this one this was from jim collins himself the fact of the matter is that life is short and we only carry to our graves the inner integrity of our efforts as far as I can tell, Jim Collins is an Eastern mystic. I have no sense that he is a Christian. So here you have wisdom crying in the streets. And if we don't declare it, the stones are going to declare it. Special revelation. Just some texts here. Look at what Ecclesiastes says. This is after Solomon's gone through his grand experiments of trying to figure out the significance and meaning of life. He says, here it is. Here's the sum of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, every businessman needs to know this text. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, that's a different perspective, isn't it, from you know, when, when I see my clients want to go out and do an expansion or something, they are very confident and they are very aggressive. I don't see a lot of humility. And frequently, I don't see much prayer going into it. And you know what usually happens? In the tubes. Now, you know what the statistics are on most acquisitions? You know what acquisition is? One company buys another company, okay, which that goes on all the time, particularly in this environment. The statistics are that 80% of all acquisitions fail to meet expectations. 80%. Now, that's not from me. That's from studies that have been done. Now, the question is, why in the world would you ever do an acquisition? You got the odds against you. That shows the fallacy of the thinking, the presuppositions of the pride, the arrogance that go into the thinking of most acquisitions. Now, you know what happens when, when most companies wind up, you know, in difficult times? What do they start doing? spinning things off. What's Ford getting ready to do? They're going to sell Hertz because it's not in their core business and they're hurting. They're losing money. So they're getting back to their core business. That's what happens invariably. Yet we presumptuously run around and do these things out of pride and arrogance because we don't read texts like James 4 and take that to heart. That seed is not in us, in our businesses. And so we continue this cycle and it's interesting to me that the, the writers, the commentators of, in the business world note these cycles. And it's like the CEOs and management teams just ignore what, what the pagan commentators are saying. They're saying, hey, guys, this is what happens. You go out and you do all these acquisitions and they don't work and then you spin them out when things are tough. It happens over and over and over again. Can we learn anything from this? We're not learning because we are so hung up in our sin that we can't learn. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. You know, this is a serious thing, guys. We got to get it that every dime you get comes from whom? It's gift from God. And we get all caught up with, look at me, I made a million dollars. Well, it's because God gave you the ability and the circumstances and the favor to do that, get on your knees and start honoring God with the first fruits. You know, this is such a fundamental thing. I'm just amazed at how we, we can't seem to get it. And over and over again, I hear all kinds of excuses about why we can't do that. Well, I, I, I can't afford it. That's, that's the favorite one. I can't afford it. You can't afford not to. Specific revelation, and here's just a couple of texts, um, and I'm just going to talk to you about the second one. I, I just get fascinated when I see how strategic God is. You know, David's anointed as king, and the Philistines immediately going to do a gut check. You know, that's what happens when, when you get anointed to do something, you get a gut check. You girls know what a gut check is? Well, on a, when you play as team sports, it's when the coach is really going to work you hard. They're going to find out what, what kind of shape you're really in. You know, they might, you know, football, you run bleachers or you, you know, you run around the, run 100-yard dashes, run around the track. You do something like that. The coaches can be devious. And, and they, they will be. And that's a gut check. You know, see who's standing at the end of the exercise yeah, or who's throwing up or whatever. So um, anyway, so you know, God uses gut checks with us, too. So David's anointed king. And here comes the gut check. Here comes the Philistines. What does David do? Gets on his knees. Lord, what do I do? Lord says, go attack him. I'm going to deliver you. Great. He does it. Great. As soon as that incident is over, right immediately, you have another gut check. That surprise you that God would put two, two gut checks here together back to back? My goodness, no rest. Okay, and this one, this is interesting because now David gets on his knees again. It's a good thing. It's easy to get pride after, after you've had some success. You think, well, I got this figured out. David was very wise. He dropped on his knees again. Lord, what do I do? The Lord says, okay, this time we're going to do it differently. Oh, really? Yeah, we're going to do it differently. This time you don't attack him head on. I want you to go behind him. And you wait till you hear the wind in the top of the trees. What? What's going on here? Well, this is God's strategy because this is the way God chose to bring the victory. It's kind of like when uh, uh, the whole issue with Jericho. I mean, who would have come up with that strategy? I mean, that, give me a break. Walk around the city, 
every day for six days and the seventh day we walk around seven times we blow the trumpets and, the, and these walls come down now come on give me a break how's that going to happen just just a side point you understand that god's exempt from his own rules did you know that he's not he's not bound by his own rules you know for example uh, we can turn water into wine but it takes a long time right he can do it like that okay and and According to quantum physics, you know, there's a finite probability you can walk on water. Okay, has anybody done it? The probability is very small, very small, but he can do it. And he can do it on a command. He tells Peter, come. Peter walks on water. Now, the bread deal, I don't know about that. I haven't figured out how to explain that with physics yet. But he can take bread. He can take five loaves and feed 5,000. And these aren't big loaves, I don't think. See, he's exempt from the rules. And we've got to get clear that if we're going to walk with God, we need his strategy so that his rules come into play and we're not bound by our limitations. All right, let's talk about how we receive revelation. All that was introduction. So that's why I told Norm, you need to tell me how long I got because I got to hurry here. Okay, there, there are four ways that you can receive revelation. There's only four ways. The first one, and these are pictured by the parable of the, of the soils. And most people think it's a parable of the seeds. It's not. It's a parable of the soils. This is about four different soil conditions. The first one is the seed that does not germinate. It does not germinate. And what happens when seed does not germinate, the enemy comes and steals it. Okay? Not only did it germinate, it got stolen. It's a double whammy. You know, and all of us are guilty of this. We all have had revelation in our lives that has not germinated, and the enemy stole it. Oh, that's a sobering thought. Okay, let me give you a quick illustration. I, was, I received a call uh, a few years ago from a client, and he, and he said, I got your name from so-and-so. Uh, my company's in trouble. Would you come over? So I came over. I sat down with him, and we, we look at the books. Of course, you know what happens. The, the scenarios are the same. You know, anytime a company's trouble, you don't have current records. You never do. It's because they don't take the time. And, and invariably what happens, they haven't paid their taxes and they haven't paid their vendors. And, you know, anyway, so the company, if you look at the balance sheet, I'm assuming you guys know something about balance sheets, and you look down the equity section, it says negative $1 million. That's upside down. Okay, he's, he's got a $1 million more liabilities than he has assets. Okay, so he says, can you come up with a plan? I said, yeah, I can come up with a plan. I said, first of all, you need to tell me can you manage your creditors? He says, I think I can. Okay, so fine, I came up with it. And by the way, this was a company that had a paid intercessor. Just FYI. So, so I, I've seen this over and over again where companies think, I get a paid intercessor, I can do what I want. No, it doesn't work that way. Paid intercessors cannot cover for you. Uh, there's nothing wrong with paid intercessors. Don't get me wrong. It's great to have them. But you cannot use that as an excuse for sin. That does not work. So anyway, so I put together a plan, came back over, gave him the plan. He said, thank you very much. I don't want to do this. I said, adios. Oh, by the way, I already had my money, so I was okay. <clears throat> so went back to my office, and this company continued to go in the tank, okay, because they refused to be good soil for the revelation that I was giving them. I was giving them rev specific revelation. I prayed. Lord, what is it you want to do with this company? I was bringing sp special revelation from Scripture. I was bringing general revelation, my understanding and my experience in the business world. I was bringing all levels of revelation to them, and they rejected that. So that does not work well. Second soil condition, okay, I call this the head fake. Okay, the reason I call this the head fake is it looks good initially. Seed germinates this time, begins to grow. Hey, it looks like we got something here except there is no real root system. So what happens when the heat comes on, then they wilt. Okay, anybody seen that? Now, this is typical of people that are young in anything. And I'm not specifically saying young in age, but young in anything. Young believers, okay? Young parents, young business people, you know, young pastors. Anybody young in anything can have Zeal with very little knowledge. Does anybody, everybody relate to that? Zeal without knowledge. In fact, Proverbs says it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. And invariably, the gut check comes. Got this enthusiasm and excitement. 
And here we come. What? What happens is we got down a mountain to climb. Now, let me give you a quick example here. Uh, there was a, a man, at, uh, I say young man, he was probably in his 40s. He was an investment advisor. And he was making, uh, he was making okay living. And, you know, probably making $40,000, $50,000 a year. And he, began, he got exposed to Earl's teaching and was just got excited about this. This is great stuff. I can take this to my clients and da-da-da-da-da. This looks really good. So he goes and does this, and within a year, guess what his income is? It's over 200000 It jumped, just dramatically jumped. Now, you know what he did? The gut check came. And he discovers leverage. Now, Earl didn't teach him leverage, okay? He, Earl didn't teach that. But he discovered leverage. And he discovered, you know, I can buy me a big house. And I could put flat screen TVs in every room. And I could have about five Cadillacs. And, oh, my father-in-law, he needs a house. And my, my mother needs a house. And so suddenly, he's taking every dollar he's got, and he's leveraging the dollar. Now, one day, what do you think happened to him? He woke up, because on his desk, there are all these notices from the banks showing you how much interest he's got to pay. Okay? And now he's scrambling. That $200,000 in income, he's using that to pay debt service. And he doesn't have anything to live on. He just dug a hole. That's what happens when you have zeal without knowledge. He had zeal for the principles, but they weren't well grounded in him, and he got lured. He got lured into false thinking. The next soil condition is also a head fake. Okay? Now, this is a soil condition where you know, you do develop some root system, you know, you, and hey, it looks good. Things are looking good. But then here comes the thorns and the thistles, the, the cares of the world, the distractions. And there's a good illustration here. There were a couple that um, lived in Southern California. Uh, their name was Melinda and Alvin. And they were married in 1981. And for about 15 years, uh, they had a very good marriage. They became Christians. They were baptized together. They attended church together. They attended Bible school studies together. Uh, Alvin prayed almost every day with his mother-in-law, who was an intercessor. And they had what looked like a very good relationship, and a very, they were very godly Christians. The pastor thought they were some of the pillars of the church. All, in about 1996, their company started really doing well, really, really doing well. And so what happens is Alvin begins to think that he's doing this. Look at me. I can run a company. I am good. And so he begins to party a little bit. Next thing you know, he's not coming home. He's found him a girlfriend, and um, he's just doing, he's going the way of the world very quickly. And eventually, he divorced his wife, and he realized after he divorced her that it was a big mistake. So one night, his wife is eating dinner, this is in February of 2002 at a restaurant with some friends, and Alvin comes into the restaurant. And Alvin wants to join them, and his wife said, you know, Alvin, it's over. You need to go. They got a security guard. The security guard escorted Alvin out. Now, Alvin is a big man, and he's not the kind of man that, that handles that kind of confrontation well, but he did on this night. But what Melinda didn't know was that he had a plan. When Melinda came out of the restaurant, she was escorted by the security guard, but Alvin was in the bushes with a shotgun. Alvin shot the security guard. He shot and killed her, her, uh, the, the lady that was eating dinner with her, and he shot Melinda. And Melinda was on the ground. It's raining outside, by the way. And Melinda's on the ground, and she felt the Lord tell her to turn over, and she turned over, and Alvin is standing over her with the barrel pointed at her, and he fires her again, fires at her again. Now, some way or another, Melinda didn't die. Don't know how. She's got shotgun pellets in her body to this day. She went through two years of intense surgery and rehabilitation to get back on her feet. But you know what she's discovered through all this? She found out that God has defined her, the purpose for her life through this situation. See, she received the revelation well. She understood that God was using this for a reason. Now her job is to help women that faced her situation. She faced a situation with a man that was abusive and battering to her, and she's now ministering to women in similar situations. So, but Alvin 
is the one with the head fake. He looked right, he felt right in many ways, but the cares of this world choked the truth of the Word of God out of his life. Finally, let's talk about the good seed, the good soil, rather. This, by the way, of the four soil conditions, there's only one that bears a crop. One. You know, just because seed germinates doesn't mean it's going to bear a crop. There's only one that bears a crop, and that's this one right here. And it bears, according to kingdom principles, 30, 60, 100 fold. You know, God's into this multiplication thing. We, we're into addition. He's into multiplication. I mean, he, he can take things, and he can just make them expand and grow incredibly. So what I want to do is go back to the construction company to illustrate this good soil. Remember the construction company that I went in, and I gave them a game plan. They said, nope, not going to do it, rejected it. Six months later, I'm sitting in my office, minding my own business, and I get a phone call. And it's the construction company owner again. First things out of his mouth was, can I repent? That's a good thing to say. It's a very good thing to say. So he said, can I repent? And I said, sure. He said, would you come over here and take another look? So I went over and took another look. And what do you think I found? The hole is deeper. It's now a million two upside down. I said, great. You've taken another $200,000 and buried this company in the last six months. He says, but I'm really serious this time. I said, really? He said, yes. So I put together a plan. I said, got my money up front again. Put together a plan and came back. I said, here's the deal. And I laid out for him what he needed to do. He looks at it and he takes a hard gulp. He says, okay, we're going to do it. And so we did. And he was true. He was faithful to the plan. He didn't do anything of significance without talking to me. And five years later, the company is worth a positive $1 million. Okay? That's what happens when you line up with God. Okay? When you follow specific biblical principles and you ask for a divine strategy you turn things around that look broken in the natural, and they become, in the natural and in the spirit, very successful. That's good soil. And we need to learn to be good soil. So here's the challenge. The challenge is to be good soil. And there are three key elements to being good soil, and that, you understand that's just a picture of a disciple. Three key elements that are takeaways here from this parable. First one is, we have to let the word germinate. If you don't let the word germinate, it gets stolen from you. Now, the world has a saying, use it or lose it. You heard that? That's the world saying. That's wisdom crying in the streets. The world has noticed this reality. That's the way God made it. We have to take truth, and we got to let it get sown in us and resonate into reality in us. So disciples are people that are obeying the Word of God. The germination of the Word of God is happening in them. Secondly, they're building good root systems. It's not just the germination. You've got to build the root system so you, you can be nourished when times of difficulty come. When the gut checks come, you can stand the test. And you do that by studying the Word, by prayer, by worship, by being in community with other believers. There are many, many tools that we have at our disposal to get well-grounded in the Word of God. And finally, you need to be accountable. Now, I like to use the word strategic boundaries. We all need strategic boundaries. When Jesus said things like, I only do what I see the Father doing, he's saying, I have a boundary in my life. We think boundaries are problems. Okay, Boundaries are good. Boundaries keep you on course. Accountability partners are great tools to keep us on course. Now, the challenge we have in our society, in my opinion, is we don't know how to live in community. And let me give you an example of that. We recently had a couple come to our church, and the man says, um, we've decided to get a divorce. And we ask, okay, are you coming for counsel? And he said, no. What do you mean you're not coming for counsel? We have already talked it out and made the decision. We are simply coming to tell you that we're leaving the church and we're getting a divorce. Now, that's how most people make decisions. They just do it on their own, and then they come and announce to you what their decision is. The construction company, my client, he had dug himself this deep hole by making his own choices using his own thinking. And 
God called him to run that company, but the way God works is he did not give the man everything he needed by himself. He gave him everything he needed in the context of community. You hear that? I mean, that's big, guys, because I submit to you, if we did a survey, virtually all of us in this room are making big decisions pretty much by ourselves. And that is, that is, that's being unaccountable. If we're going to be disciples, we have got to be connected. We have got to be talking about the key issues of our lives, the challenges, the problems, and asking for counsel of godly people before we make these decisions. If you do this, if you will live this way, you will be good soil and you will bear a crop. If you don't, you're going to be like dry, parched ground that's not bearing anything. And that's what our lives will become if we don't walk as God defined disciples to walk. Now, I want to just, just remind you again, because this is so hard, this principle, this reality works for companies. And wisdom is crying in the street, and we have the unsaved world recognizing some of God's principles. How many of you know who Pareto is? Does anybody know who Pareto is? You've got a few people know who Pareto is. Okay, He's an Italian economist. Lived about 100 years ago. And uh, he noticed something about the Italian economy. He noticed that 80% of the wealth was held by 20% of the people. Okay? And then some years later, there's a business professor that takes that principle and he starts applying it to other areas of business. He says 80% of your problems come from 20% of your people. 80% of your sales comes from 20% of your revenue. He starts applying this principle, and that led to what we call the 80-20 rule. Okay, you heard the 80-20 rule? Okay, that's how that came about. It was not scientifically discovered. It was qualitatively discovered. It was an observation. What they discovered was the principle of the soils. That's what they discovered. It's really the 75-25 rule. We Christians ought to be telling the business world this principle. Oh, by the way, the parable of souls, this is the way it works in business. But we're not doing that because we don't look at the Bible as a handbook for business. If you're not looking at something, the handbook, you don't study it. You don't think about it from that perspective. Okay, there's a bonus here. Revelation is about seeing reality, which brings us to repentance. This is a, this is a text I quoted to you from Job 42. My eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I repent. You see, God wants to continually bring us to those moments where we go to another level of understanding and relationship with him. That is what he is all about, okay? Good soil is always doing this. It's always receiving revelation and acting on that revelation and going on to another level. Now, this, this, uh, this pattern can be seen in John 8, verse 31 through 32. Uh, at the school I went to uh, university, and on the main building of that school is the, is the phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, that phrase is out of context. Okay, you've got to look at the context. John 8, 31 and 32 says this. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see that? It says it's, there's a predicate here to getting freedom. And you got to back up to first. In fact, it's five steps. First, there's revelation from God that you believe, okay, that leads to your obedience, which opens the door for more revelation, which gives you blessing. You see, the Jews had some level of revelation about Jesus, and they believed him. They're not going to believe anybody. They had to have some revelation that said, this man is speaking truth, so we're going to believe him. And Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, okay, you say you believe me. Now, the way I know you believe me is you hold to my teaching. That is, you do, you line up your life with my teaching, okay? Then you are my disciples. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is not a convert. A disciple is a person that holds to the teaching of Jesus, okay? Then it says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the bonus here. Be good soil. Be good soil, and you will receive the blessings of God in your life. All right, let me just conclude with Henry. 
Henry has just been booted out of his company. But Henry is good soil. Okay? He is good soil. Now, what are his options? Well, he could, he could sue the guy. That's what we do today, isn't it? Sue him. Call the attorney. Sue him. Okay? He could uh, start a slander campaign. We could, we'll call the media. Let's have a press conference, and we're going to tell everybody the truth about this, this guy. Ferdinand is a rat. Okay? We're going to make everybody know that. Or what do we, we could, we could uh, go hire a competitor and compete against him. We know, we know how to do this. Ferdinand's not going to follow the principles that we've established, and we know we can beat him. We'll go beat him. We'll bury him. You ever heard that? I hear that. I have people talk about, talk about I'm going to bury my competition. Okay? He didn't do that. You know what he did? Did he go home and pray? No, he didn't go home and pray. Got you. He went over to Robert's house and prayed. <laughs> you see this? The community? Uh-huh, yeah, see? We are very individualistic. Not Henry. You know, he went over to Robert's. Robert had been booted out unjustly, and they together get on their knees and cry out to God. As they prayed, they prayed almost daily, week after week after week. Finally, one day they got, a, they got it some insight. And Robert says, you know, Henry, I think we're supposed to buy whatever outstanding stock we can buy. And Henry says to Robert, well, Robert, you know, Ferdinand has 50%. Even if we got the other 50%, we still got a, a deadlock. And Robert says, well, Henry, I don't know. I'm just feeling the Holy Spirit is telling us we need to buy stock. Okay, so they start buying stock. Unbeknownst to Henry and Robert, this is so godlike, you know, you know, they're over here. God's over there doing something else. Ferdinand is self-sabotaging, and he doesn't know it. This is God's strategy is so beautiful. Ferdinand's over there thinking, okay, I got control of the company. I'm going to get all my cronies on board. And by the way, I need to elevate my standing with the bankers. So I got this guy, Will Christie. He's a good buddy of mine. I'm going to put him on the board. So Will Christie comes on the board. Now, Will is a good banker, and he's a good businessman. And he begins to see reality in this company. He begins to, to research what the history of the company was and realizes that it's really, it's been Henry and Robert and Jim, the threefold cord, that's made this company great. And Ferdinand has been a snake. He figures this out on his own. Henry and Robert have no idea this is going on. They're over here praying, seeking God month after month and hearing nothing except go buy stock. And they're, I, what do we do? What do we do? But they just keep praying together. Together they seek God. So Will over here is getting clear on what's going on in this company. And so what he does is he begins to go talk to investors. He says, hey, this guy is not what we, this Ferdinand guy is not who we think he is. He's a snake. We need to get rid of him or he's going to bury this company. So what he does is he begins to get investors to go buy stock. So now you have Henry and Robert you know, offering to buy stock. And now you have these investors offering to buy stock. Now, what do you think happened to the stock price? It starts going up. That's what happens, okay? When demand strips, out, strips supply, prices go up. That's what's happening with gasoline right now. So price goes up. Ferdinand looks at that and says, oh, well, this is interesting. You know, I have some debt left over. You know, maybe I ought to sell some stock and pay off this debt. Great opportunity. The stock price is double. It's gone from 40 to almost $90 a share. I'm going to sell 10% of my stock and pay off my debt. Besides, I control the board. So that's what he did. You see the trap he walked into? Set up divinely by God, strategically, because two men were in a closet together, not individually, but together, praying and seeking God, walking in biblical principles, saying, we're not going to sue, that's not biblical. We're not going to criticize this man because we're going to love our enemies. In fact, we're going to pray for this man. They were walking in the revelation of God, obediently as disciples, and God is orchestrating the coup because victory rests with God. That's what happens when we're good soil as God fights the battle for us. Can we have grace to hear that? Yes. By the way, this man was Henry Parsons Crowell, the founder of Quaker Oats. 
And he's also the man that saved Moody Bible Institute when it was nearly out of money and to despair. And you today have benefited greatly from what he's done, not just because of the oatmeal company that he built, but all that he did through Moody Bible Institute because he, after he was reinstated at Quaker Oats and got the company well-established again, he went on to be president of Moody Bible Institute and uh, did a great job in setting up a legacy of godly, godly men at that institution. That could happen to you if you are good soil. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great inspiring story of Henry Parsons Crowell and how he was good soil. We thank you that your word is so powerful. It is great seed. Lord, give us the grace to receive your seed. And Lord, give us the grace to be good soil, to be people that really hear the word and receive it and let it germinate in us. And we protect our growth and we are accountable and community together to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and to be your servants. Father, we commit ourselves to that task. Lord, give us the grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.